0: We spent a little bit of time last week trying to appreciate a rather complex topic. And last week I would call the topic of opposition, where we spent a lot of time trying to work out the battlefields. And it felt to me a lot, a, a lot like, you know, that Torah was putting on its battle helmet and sitting in the trenches. And the type of perspective that we had was that the further we went into that and the more the advances you would have in science, the more we'd have to defend ourselves as to the Torah system, the science system, and how the two coexisted with each other, which is a very difficult, difficult thing to put into, um, together. What I'd like to do this week is to go consider it from a very different angle. To, to learn with you, there's a lot more Torah in this section, as to perhaps how, how much the Torah can in fact coexist, can work together with evolution itself, and the theories of science that we have. So let's start from the very beginning. Just a quick recap. The problems that we had, just uh, for those who are not able to be here, and as a quick recap, also for those who are going to be listening online, on the right-hand side is where the sources are, so you're able to take a look. So, the, first of all, we seem to say that the Torah, the Torah seems to be very explicit about the creation of differentiated species and a static creation on day six, and then the creation of humanity being a separate, a separate stage of creation, which is what we, which it seems to be very different to the way that evolution is arguing. And number two is that it talks about the creation of humanity being which means to say that it sounds like very simple, basic, mud-dust material, which does not, is not the argument of evolution, which is that there was a process which allowed humanity to come into being. So, on a textual level, very simply, there seems to be contradictions. We talked about it on a philosophical level. We talked about William Paley as an example. <laughs> At the end of the 18th century, um, the way he, does, he describes his argument by design, the argument by design of, of William Paley is that, um, that if you find a watch on the ground, it's impossible. It is practically impossible that that watch should ever have just arrived there by one car, you know, metal blowing in a certain direction, and then it forming into a cog and then landing in the right place. And we talked about the watch being the most sophisticated, advanced in technology at the time. And this is the, the, uh, the argument of the watchmaker, the argument by design. Charles Darwin, in his, um, in his um, auto, autobiography after, which he wrote m- many years later, Points out and he specifically attacks Pei and he says that look you know what there's no more order in the watch coming into being than there is in the wind blowing because now I can explain to you the complexity of creation the complexity of creation arrived very simply because it evolved It was billions of years there's lots of time for these things to happen and therefore push comes to shove that which is improbable becomes plausible and now we have what we the uh, the end result which is extremely complex but it was because of a of a system of laws. That's what um, Charles Darwin argued. We spent a little more time on this last week. And finally, we looked at the words of Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker, among others. And he argues that um, that Paley was, uh, was incorrect, his science is incorrect, that because we know about evolution now, there are, uh, human, humanity is not uh, in any form a crown in glory of the creation process. It just happens to be the, you know, the, most, the fittest of the whole bunch. And that's where we are right now, which is um, the end of the process. He uh, he's uh, a very avid atheist. Um, so that's where kind of where we left off, and we spend a lot of time questioning science. I think it's important to remember that the questions that we asked last week still exist. You know, science is not uh, Torah and Asheraim. There's a lot of uh, a lot of questions, a lot of gaps. But now, instead of in attack mode, let's take a look from a different perspective in terms of synthesis. I'd like to, to take it from the, from first of all, just a very fascinating approach that David Foreman offers. He's he's uh, talking in a Devar Torah on the Parashas Noah, and um, in, in, in this Devar Torah he has a very interesting insight, which is a, just a, a fascinating way just to start off the conversation. That is, his question that he's dealing with is not the question of evolution, but the question of why does there are no, no dinosaurs in the Torah, meaning, you know, you look around, you go to Pennsylvania, you go to the regular, the regular areas where you can find fossils, and there are lots of fossils of animals which didn't exist, uh, don't exist anymore. So why is the Torah omitting them? You know, creation does not seem to talk about these great things. Maybe the Taninim HaGadolim might be the closest we're going to get to. But there's not much more that the Torah talks about. So, you know, go to the Museum of Natural History and you have to explain to your children that, well, you know, this is true, but w- so why is it not in the Torah? So his, his question is the following. He points out that he read a book called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. No relation, I assume. Okay. Um, so he in the in the in this book he argues that uh, in order to be able to read a book properly, you need to understand what the agenda of the book is. So, for instance, you know if you're reading a comedy and you think it is a science book, you know you're not going to appreciate the book itself. If you're reading a, the, the examples he gives, if you're reading a chemistry textbook and you think it's poetry, or you're reading a poetry book and you think it's a chemistry textbook. Not only you're not going to understand it or appreciate it, you're simply just not going to, you're just not going to be able to ask the right questions. So his example is, you know, let's take the, the, the poem Fog by Carl Sandburg. So the, the poem starts off, a very short poem, it says, the fog comes, uh, comes on little cat feet. <coughs> so imagine you have a student at the back of the classroom, the, cl- the student says, you know, teacher, teacher, I'm sorry I don't understand, the fog doesn't have feet. The fog's not a cat, it just doesn't make sense. So the teacher says, well, you know, you know, Jamie, I have to explain something to you. This is not a science textbook. We're not explaining the, you know, the, the, the actual makeup of fog. What we're talking about is we're giving a metaphoric description to help you understand a certain element of, flo- of fog. The problem is that if you're reading poetry, if you're reading Carl Sandburg as a science book, then you're not going to necessarily understand what he's trying to get to. So his question is, is, very simply, is, so what is the Torah? Meaning, so what type of book is the Torah? So it's it's not so simple because you have to think about this for a moment. On the one hand, you might say, well, it's a storybook yeah. because it's got lots of stories. But the problem with that is the problem with that is there's lots of laws, right? It, it isn't a storybook, right? So you say, well, maybe it's a law book. But the problem is there's, there's lots of stories. So you say, well, you know what it is? It's philosophy. The problem is there's too many stories and laws for it to be a full philosophy book, right? So there mu- it must be. It must be that there's something else going on, right? The, the, the Torah isn't one or the other. It's a little more complex than that. So the argument that he makes, and I think this is a very fascinating argument, is the Torah is a guidebook. The Torah is interested in guiding us. So the Torah will guide us sometimes by telling us stories, <laughs> it'll tell us laws, it'll tell us philosophy. There'll be lots of ways that the Torah will guide us, but the, the underlying principle is guidance, not stories, not laws, not philosophy. By the way, that explains the first Rashi in the Torah. By the way, right? I mean, what, what's Rashi asking, quoting Rabbi Yitzchak? The Rashi's question was, why does the Torah not start by Chodesh Azalakem, <laughs> right in ball? Well, we came we to Pasha Chodesh. Sa- why is it started at the beginning? And it says, <laughs> Rashi says it says that there's a value of understanding where we come from, the context of where we come from, uh, certainly about the land and further and beyond that. So, what Rashi is essentially saying is exactly that point. Rashi is saying is that there's a place for narrative, right? There's a place for narrative beyond law. That's what Rashi is essentially starting the Torah by talking about, which is guidebook. And this is the argument that Raoul Former makes, and therefore his point was that the Lagabe dinosaurs, dinosaurs weren't important for the agenda of guidance. Did it happen? Of course we have the fossil record. But that's not important because the Torahs tried to guide us. It isn't important to the guidance aspect to include every single detail. You know, you go to let's say you're going to visit Belgium, you know, so you bring out a guidebook. The guidebook's going to tell you places of interest and certain things to do in the ways of transportation. Is it going to tell you the history of every uh, coffee, coffee shop on every street corner? The answer is no, because that's not part of guidance. It's not giving, that's not necessary to guide you through a visit to Belgium. That's the argument of our foreman makes. Very fascinating, very important insight to, to have before we, start with, uh, before we start learning the Torah. Now this helps a lot when it comes to dinosaurs because the Torah doesn't seem to emphasize dinosaurs. Here's the issue, here's the problem, and then we need to work backwards. And he mentioned this, actually he was here he at a few weeks ago, and he mentioned that, so I think this is a very salient point. You should still be able to factor out guidance and still arrive at true facts, meaning, let's say you're opening your, your, your guidebook to, to Belgium. And the tour tells you about you know, the history you know, of a particular, I'm you know, um, say, marketplace. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, it happens to be that it's not a a history textbook, so it's not going to be telling you the whole history, but you should be able to minus the guidance part, you know, where to visit, and you'll still get the truth of about the history that was told, fair? I mean, the history part, or the story part, or the law part that the guidebook is telling you should should still be accurate, even though it's not the full necessary truth or history, because that's not the point of it. So, what we need to go back and say is, okay, so it may omit dinosaurs, but then, when it describes creation, although it's giving us, in terms of the, the aspects of guidance, we should be able to remove that and still get truth. Right? I mean, scientific truth still be. I mean, it might be referring to scientific facts, that's not the point, but the scientific facts should be still true. So now we reverse back and say, well, we're still back at square one then, right? Because it seems that the Torah is describing evolution, you know, it's describing creation in a static, diversified way. Meaning an already made world well, that there's suddenly came into being a whole bunch of creatures like this in their species. So that's that's our challenge for the rest of today. Is try to understand: Is it in fact can we remove that guidance and see in fact the truth inside it in, in, um, on a scientific level as well? Fair starting point. Let's take it one step further. Rav Sol- Rasulovich Rav says in numerous places. Um, one of them in the Lonely Man of Faith, another in the Mer- emergence of ethical man. He says the following, in, in Lonely Man of Faith, I've never been seriously troubled by the problem of the biblical doctrine of creation vis-a-vis, the scientific story of evolution, at both the cosmic and the organic levels. Nor have I been perturbed by the confrontation of the mechanistic interpretation of the human mind with the biblical spiritual concept of man. I've not been perplexed by the impossibility of fitting the mystery of revelation into the framework of historical empiricism. So, Ralph himself is saying... You know <laughs> what? <laughs> you what? Is a <laughs> Rashi on <that? laughs> well, Folks, there's nothing <laughs> to. Uh, <laughs> I remember the first time I read the Lonely L- L- Man of Faith with a d- dictionary next to me. <laughs> in fact, I think uh, Sunny actually got me a gift, Ishaim Muna in Hebrew, and so the Hebrew dictionary didn't help. <laughs> um, so, what he's saying is essentially, well, he's not, he's not really saying. Do you see, meaning, what he, his, his point is, is that he does not feel bothered by the whole experience of evolution versus Torah thoughts. That's, that's meaning, the Loning the Man in Faith is actually dedicated to the, the description of creation in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he's saying that the, the notion of evolutionary thought isn't a concern to me. Moreover, in the emergence of the ethical man, he, says he points out that the issue of evolution is seeming irreconciliation with the Bible troubled Christian theologians more than Jewish scholars. The naturalistic for- formula of man was to a certain extent common knowledge among the Jewish sages, who did not resent it, where- whereas Christian theologians are still struggling with the secularization of human existence by scientific research. So, Rav Soloveitchik he, he feels that the Christian world is a lot harder time coming to terms with evolution than he as a Jewish thinker. Now, he doesn't explain himself. There's many theories that are advanced as to how that could really work. He doesn't explain why that should be. But um, let, let, let's think about it for, for, a few, for a few reasons for a moment. Um, some argue, by the way, Rav Rosenzweig argues, Rav Rosenzweig was here yesterday, argues in the uh, Lonely Man of Faith, in this particular passage, that, that there's the possibility <coughs> of living in tension. I mean, there are many concepts in Judaism. The, the deepest and hardest concepts are concepts where you have two values at stake and they're at constant tension. And I think the complexity of the reality of the world that we deal with is one which lends itself to tension because it's a complex world that Hashem created. So, some read into Rav Soloveitchik as understanding that Rav Soloveitchik is simply saying, I can live with the fact that I don't know all the answers, which I think to some is a very comforting thought, because if a mind like Rav Soloveitchik says that, then we can rest assured that he's done a lot of thinking about it. And he's still happy with the notion that he understands that the Torah is saying one thing, and science is saying something else, and it isn't really really, causing him lack of sleep. Nonetheless, I think maybe we could take it a, a step further. I think there is a, perhaps even a more of a reason. I would like to come back to why it is that maybe Jewish thought is less concerned with evolution than Christian thought might be. Without making any accusations on Christian thought, but in terms of appreciating Jewish thought. Let's take it further. So the first question is, is the Torah literal? Is the Torah actually telling us the literal tr- truth of it? Uh, let's take a fascinating look into this letter. Right, Ramesh Cook, remember that he lived at the first... Well, the really the end of the twentieth, the nineteenth century, going in, the twentieth century, going into, I'm sorry, the end of the 1900s, going into the twi- into into the 2000s, uh, into the, uh, the 1900s. He died in the early 1930s, before the state of Israel. One of the most remarkable thinkers in Jewish, um, in Jewish philosophy of modern times, and he addresses lots of issues. Among them, he does address evolution, and this is in a letter, Kuf Lamet Dala, that he sends to. Um, I think it's Rav Zaidel. I'm not sure who that was at the time. he says the following. I'm just going to read it from, from my notes, it's a little easier to read. Um, he says the following. Okay, one second, here we are. He says, I, I, a, I feel obliged to address your pure uh, I feel obliged to address your pure spirit. Because of the you know the knowledge that is arriving with recent research, Torah, which seemingly on a on a level um, uh, most of them seem to contradict the Torah. I, I, my understanding is Anybody who has got a you know we'll call it an intellectual honesty should know. Don't take it as absolute truth. By the way, this is an important value uh, like perspective on science. Even though you're not going to necessarily accept this as, you know, God-given Torah, we don't have to spend our time fighting against it. Right? It is not the point of the Torah to tell us what happens. The, the function of the Torah in Baratius specifically, is not to tell us what happened with your watching as a spectator. Ha-ikar ha the Torah's point over here is to tell, convey to us a certain toich. Toich means inner value, inner, inner idea, if you want to take it further. The metaphysical underpinnings of the creation of humanity is what the Torah is actually concerned with. And this general key is going to help you try to understand things. What the way this is generally understood and what he's saying here, this is understood by many who came before him as well is that all Torah can be understood on four <coughs> levels, generally. Four, we'll call it categorical levels. We're, we're called Paradise, Paradise, Pei, Reishtalad, Samach, which is Pshat, Remesh, drush, drush, Sod, right? So there's different layers of, of um, understanding. Pshat will be like the Mephoresh, um, Pshat, like Rashi, Rashpan. Rashi actually might be, a, might be on two levels. But um, then there's Drush, which all the Midrashim. Then um, remes is in a deeper level, Sod is a Kabbalistic level. There's different levels of understanding the Torah. What the what Rav Cook is saying, what others say before him, is that on the, when you read chapter one of creation, there is no pay. There's no pay. There's no pshat. It means to say that the Torah is not describing physical reality. The Torah is, Torah is describing metaphysical reality and the emergence of a greater sense of creation. Now that is a completely different story. He's, he goes on to say. Um, He gives an example. I'm going to give you a big, great expansion. I don't really care if the world started, you know, with a pillar of gold and everything developed out of that. Or there was a... A, a development from the, the, orga- the inorganic to the organic uh, upwards. From the bottom to the very top. And it expanded from there. On What we need to know is not that, but rather We see from the creation process that humanity can rise to the top and sink to the bottom within a certain amount of time. He has a capacity to Rise, be created by God, and sin within the same point of time. And he goes on to discuss how this relates to Christian theology as opposed to original sin. Meaning to say that the Torah's kind of concern over here is not, about, is not about what actually happened, the nitty gritty. It's, it's not a snapshot by snapshot talking about the natural sciences. It is actually not a description of what happens. It is a description of the metaphysics underpinning why we are, the instructions of who we are. Which is fascinating. So I mean, of cook you can have all the science you want in the world, but it's not going to really affect us because it's not. the Torah is not concerned with that in the, in the Maas Eberatius. So how we got you in the first place, that, that's irrelevant to the process of creation itself. What Rav Kuk has essentially done over here is he's divorced himself, he's removed himself from understanding the Torah on the literal level over here. Which, by the way, if you go, there's a, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi Weeder, Rabbi Jeremy Weeder has an entire sheer dedicated to this, you know, if you have a chance on why you Torah, it's a very fascinating listen. And it goes through the Rishonim. We talk about this, you know, of go and the Chuas Rashba. There, are many people who go in this particular derek. That when you can't understand the Torah on a literal level, it must mean that the Torah is actually conveying things on a non-literal level. And he argues with this about creation, very fascinating and um, insight. And uh, this, the, this is this is a one particular approach to things. But the thing is, is that if it if it is literal, let's let's assume for a moment that maybe the Torah is describing something a little more literal. It's not talking about the actual creation. But maybe, maybe, maybe it's maybe it's actually can it approximate it and still work? So here's has, he has a few things we should note before going into 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 battle mode and saying well you know let's defend ourselves against science. How many things are actually, in fact, in science are actually similar to Ju- to Judaism, similar to religion? So one of them, Rav Shemshin, Rafael Hirsch, he's actually he's a little more varied and I'm, and uh, um, when it comes to his understanding of evolution. But there's one point that he points out, Rash, I think is very worthwhile. And that is the unity of life. Listen to what he says in his collected writings. He says, present-day natural science, in whose genuine advances our generation must justly take pride suggests the possibility that all the ver- vari- 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 uh, vari- variated forms of nature may be reduced to basic atomic elements. That the multitude of forces at work in nature may have originated from one primal force and that all, na- all laws of nature in fact derive from one single law. The unification of the natural sciences is occurring despite the fact that the study of natural sciences is becoming increasingly sophisticated. The subject matter be, uh, to be mastered requiring an increasingly complex division of labor among scientists. Is that interesting? Right? The, more we, the more we study, the more diversified, but the more singular it becomes. Now suppose that, please forgive the outsider's comment, the proponents of this unification theory, overly excited <coughs> by a few startling initial results that would seem to support the hypothesis, will proclaim this mere possibility which may never be substantiated as because remember, he's living at such a time, to be incontrovertible says incontrovertible certainty, and will use it as a basis for some hasty conclusions. Is Judaism not justified in welcoming the mere chance that the hunch pursued by these scientists will prove to be correct? <coughs> Do the findings of all the natural sciences to date not show similarities at the world um, that the that would suggest the existence of the very oneness of that foundation of Judaism? Is it not possible that the astronomer in his observatory, the mineralogist in the pit, the physiologist with his microscope, the anatomist with his scalpel, the chemist with his flask, will be forced to conclude that all their studies actually center on the one and the same work of creation in the heavens and the earth? Is it not possible that with all the investigation, their investigations, they find themselves on the track of one single thought with a capital A T, that inspires the creation of matter, and energy, law, and forms, that even in the midst of the infinite variety presented by the universe, there is an obvious single harmonious unity. What well, his point is that, is that you know, when we're looking at all these things, there's a lot of complexity, but the notion that everything derives from a single point, whether it be all the different disciplines of science, or in fact all aspects of creation that we see, that's a very Jewish concept. The concept that in fact that everything came from one place, there was one creator who, the, that operated the mechanism to get there, that's a very Jewish concept. Before we get to how and what the creation is saying, just let's appreciate for a moment that Greek philosophy, and it was talked about beforehand, was quite satisfied for centuries and centuries with the notion that the world, the world always was. Right? The Rambam spent so long in him trying to prove that the world had a beginning point. Think about this, what we're saying over here is, is that the creation in Judaism is talking about how there is God and God expands creation into what we have in a complex world. That science is finally catching up and science is now telling us that look look at the complexity, it all actually comes from one point. It says, it says, it says Fantastic, we're on the right track. Fantastically, now, now we finally start, start speaking on the same wavelength. So if we get to the nitty-gritty, the actual just appreciation of the fact that, that the notion of unity is a very Jewish concept. Let's take it a little further. Let's, let, let's, let's consider the order of creation for a moment. Right? So we have all different things. We have humans, we have reptiles, we have birds, we have amphibians, we have fish life, aquatic life, we have plant life, we have mammal life. right? So when we consider creation as, um, as a whole, let's, let's think about the order of creation. Right? There's a lot of um, debate, but there's a general, a general appreciated trend. Just take a look over here for a moment. Okay, so if you look at this, is a, this is a chart. This is one of the many charts of the development of, um, of evolution, of, of life forms. So as you can see, it's a little hard to read because there's so much going on over here. But at the very, very far left, from the, um, uh, there is the notion of the creation of bacteria. Actually, it, it's, it, it's moving. It's actually very hard to, to see. It's, it's moving outwards in both directions. But there's, there's bacteria are, um, moving away to their plants. Fungi, proto, uh, pr- uh, protos, um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then we go to we uh, we enter into as right around the top over here. We move into sharks, sea, sea squirts, sharks, fish. Then we talk about the salamander, which we still have today. Um, I've actually seen one in a in a uh, in a, a in a uh, um, aquarium. Amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, and mammals. Of course, you know humanity coming out at the end of the mammalian period. Now, and there's of course, as we move outwards, there's mass extinctions. What's interesting is, is that if you put it into the general flow of (coughs) development of life, you know, and you look back at at creation itself, you know, it is interesting, because take a look at this, you know, like, let's, let's go back to the, to the, the the creation process itself. We have on day three, where, where we talk about there's the development, there's land rising from the water. And then we talk about Totsea or its So we have the idea of the spouting forth of what? First, plant life. Then we talk about when we get to when you skip down to day five, right? Because day four is talking about celestial realms. Interesting why it interrupts. And then we talk it talks about over here, let's get into day five. We talk about our Mind Sheretz Nepeshchaya. They let the waters you know have this moving creation, Sheritz Nefeshchaya. That isn't necessarily a fish yet, right? There's a this idea of this Sheretz this, this is that it could mean referring to either the way it moves or the way the Torah describes it or actually the way it reproduces. Of your al arts, there's the development of flying life. Now we have these large sea creatures. And now we have these creepy, these crawling things in the water. And the modern will argue that these things that are creep in the water means to say that they're already amphibious. I mean, they have. They have flippers that allow them to walk on land. And then we move into day six where we talk about the creation of mammals and finally humans. So what's interesting is, is, with the exception of birds, birds becomes a little complicated because where birds fall on the evolutionary scale is not so clear. It seems to be a development of reptiles, but there may at some argue that maybe may be mammals a little earlier as well. Right? So uh, barring, the, uh, barring that particular detail, and I, I, I'm admitting to that, I'm pointing that out on the, on the table, in general, there seems to be a general development from the inorganic life to organic life, starting with aquatic life, moving to reptilian amphibious life, depending on the way you read day five, into mammalian life, which leads into, you know, finally, humanity. So just in terms of appreciation of, of the process of creation, without getting into the nitty-gritty right now, the general process, not only is it unity, but there seems to be a similar trend in creation as to evolution. Take a look at the way the Ramalvin describes it. Uh, Bria, this is the, this is where the Malbim remember the Malbim is is talking at the times where he's aware of what is being argued, because you know it's it's not fair to go back and say you know you know what would you know early Meforashim say because it's it's they weren't addressing um, evolution they didn't know about it at the time he says Abriah haocha midarug le creation went from level to level says the Malbim d'omem from an inanimate somer, to that which is plant life chay which is living life medaber which is humanity. Every stage was a preparation for the next stage. First is the creation of the luminaries for which sustains life. Then creates living life. We know that creation didn't jump. Creation was a process. Um, And he talks about how we have these, we'll call them in-between creatures, which are the bridges between, um, we'll call it the, you know, the 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 inanimate life, right? As we're moving towards bacteria, in a sense, to the plant life, and then finally between these uh, these bridge creatures, the polyps, which are between. Plant life and living life, and we have the primates, which are between living the we'll call it mammal life and humanity. Right? So by the way, just you know, look at his honesty of the Malbim. Right. He's bringing this all into onto you know, the table. here. Madrego, Also the and we see that it's always a movement from the lo- below development upwards, from inorganic to the organic. Also so we know that also a plant life developed was from, first of all, we see like the, the grass, to the foliage, to the trees, right? Meaning there was also development in that di- direction. He says, look, the science of the time is telling us that there's six levels of creation. Right? So these are like uh, um, types of worms. I would assume he's referring to bacteria. Um, then, which he calls in brackets, insectim. Okay? Nice. Insects, HaDagim, the fish, HaChayas, HaMayim. amphibium HaChayim, ba'yam Uva, yabasha. Right? So we're talking about an amphib- the amphibious life. HaOphos, the birds, HaYonkim. AYonkim means? Right, because Yonek means to say suckling, means to say hot, warm-blooded animals, mammals. Okay? UShnei MaYarachos Rishonim, Loy Nizkru Omdim Bain The first two levels, bacteria and, um, and, uh, and what was the second one? Is um, insects are not mentioned because it's not necessary for the Torah because there are so, such transitionary points, which by the way comes back to Ra'a Ra, Ra, Foreman for a moment. Um, I'm not sure what that verb, thank you. And he goes on to describe how the development of lungs and the development of different types of reproduction systems are more, less sophisticated at the earlier points. So the, the Malvin is pointing out, just before we even go any further, is that when you look at creation as a whole, creation itself is actually a very good approximation of what science is telling us later in terms of the development of stages of life, which is fascinating. For me, this is an unbelievable, unbelievable realization. You know, when you read the Torah, the Torah is actually in the same general direction of the development of creation. But let's take it one step further. So... He has, he has an interesting point. This is Rav Hertz. You know, you know Rabbi Hertz, you probably know because. Chumash. The Chumash, right? Rav Hertz used to be the chief rabbi of England. <coughs> and he wrote a he wrote Pirish on the Chumash. And actually, I was at a wedding a long time ago, before the days where, where the stone Chumash took over everything. And, the, and it was before the days of cell phones as well, the wedding. So there was nothing to do. Uh, you, how could you imagine anything like that? And it was a very long wedding. It, the, the, the chuppah took an hour to start. And in front of me was a Chumash. It was initial, so I pulled out the Chumash, and I heard the Chumash, In the end of Beresha, he has a whole section on, he has beautiful essays at the end of every section of Chumash, and on the end of Beresha, lo and he talks about evolution. So it was a very worthwhile waiting. And, um, and he said that, this is many, many, many years ago, and a, a, a very fascinating description, he says, in the face of this great diversity of views as to the manner of creation, There is therefore nothing inherently un Jewish in the evolutionary conception of the origin and growth of forms of existence from simple to complex and from the lowest to the highest. The biblical account itself gives expression to the same general truth of gradual ascent from amorphous chaos to order, from inorganic to organic, from lifeless matter to vegetable, animal, and man. Insisting, however, and this is the important part, insisting, however, that each stage is no product of chance but is an act of the divine will realizing the divine purpose and receiving the seal of the divine approval. Such likewise is in in effect the evolutionary uh, position. Behind the orderly development of the universe, there must be a cause. At once controlling and permeating the process, uh, allotting for the evidence in favor of interpreting existence in terms of the evolutionary facts to be explained, and he goes on. What he's saying is a very interesting thing. Listen, listen to what, 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 uh, what Rob Hertz is saying. He's saying, "Look, I'm, I'm prepared. I'm very happy to see that it approximates and it goes in the same direction. But the point that evolution is not pointing out is, how did it get from stage to stage? Meaning, creation is telling you or telling us, how we got from one place to the next? How do we get one, from one life la- la- form of the next, which seems to be in the same direction as science? Let, let, let's take this one for this. Let's, let's make this even one more steps of more sophisticated. Here's the works of uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Stephen Jay Gould was one of the preeminent biologists, or paleontologists actually, um, in his description of evolution. And he introduced into the scientific uh, jargon, or into the scientific parlance, a notion of what's called um, punctuated equilibria. He wrote an essay, which is very well worth reading, you can find on the internet, called Punctuated Equilibria, the Tempo and Mode of Evolution Reconsidered by him and Niles Eldredge. Okay, he, um, he's a very, very fascinating person. <coughs> very fascinating. The essay is extremely difficult to uh, when it comes down to the, the very specific science. But here's he has ca- what he points out in his, his his comments. He says the following: Towards a general philosophy of change, punctuated equilibria is a model for discontinuous tempos of change at one biological level only. The process of speciation and the deployment of species in geological time. Nonetheless, we believe that a general theory of punctua- punctuational change is broadly or by no means exclusively <coughs> valid throughout biology. What he's saying is a very important point. You see, part of the trouble with the Darwinian notion of the development of evolution was that Darwin championed the notion of what's called gradualism. Which means to say that over a very, very long time there were small, small changes. Those small changes amounted to bigger changes over time. And slowly the species changed and developed into the fittest and we got the surviving species as we have them today. The problem with Darwin, as we pointed out last week, is there's many problems with Darwin. But one of the problems with Darwin is, is that first of all, we have many missing gaps in the fossil record. Right? We don't have a, a lot of the transitional creatures at cru, cru, crucial points. Moreover, as we talked about last week, in the words of um, um, Dr. Schroeder, is when you, we're not able to reproduce macroevolution. We can only witness microevolution. From within one species, to, uh, we can see the, the development even within the bacteria, as we can see evolution. How does it work? So his argument is the following, he says that you know, that what re- ended up happening was that evolution didn't just go gradually, there was a tempo change, meaning to say that it, it was very, very fast at one point, there was a, a punctuated point of very, very fast change, and then it went back to a gradual change, and then there was a very fast point of, of change, and then it went back to regu- uh, regular tempo. Which means to say that life was moving fast, slow, fast, slow over time, which explains why we don't have a fossil record, because it was those periods of immense and intense change. That the change actually occurred, but we don't have the fossil record for that in between time. Now, just as a fascinating note, I thought this was absolutely amazing. He brings this into actual, into social, into the social realm. Listen to this quote. He says, The official Soviet handbook of Marxism and Leninism, anonymously updated, proclaims, The transition of a thing through the accumulation of quantitative modifications from one qualitative state to a different new state is a leap in development. It is a transition to a new quality and and signalizes a sharp turn, a radical change in development. We often describe modern Darwinism as a theory of the evolution of the organic world, implying that this evolution covers both qualitative and quantitative changes. Leap-like qualitative changes in social life are designated by the concept of revolution. The evolutionary development of society is inevitably consummated by a leap-like qualitative transformation by revolutions. Fascinating. See what he's doing? He's bringing it into, into the development of, of human social order. The idea that how do you get change? Of course is by leaps, by immediate changes. What's the stimulating? This is of course celebrating the white and then the red revolution. You you see, in thought, his comment is, it's easy to see the explicit ideology lurking behind the general statement about the nature of change. May we not also discern the implicit ideology in our Western preference for gradualism. Meaning to say, maybe the reason why not gradualism is because we've been educated that everything develops slowly and we give space for everything to... Meaning his point was that maybe Darwin was affected by the social science of the time when arguing gradualism, when in reality... The real change which exists, as argued by communism, is in fact in leaps and bounds. And he, therefore, he, uh, this is not his proof. This happens to be a very fascinating extrapolation that the changes on re- in reality, when they were most crucial, happened at a very fast of periods at leaps um, in his uh, notion of uh, punctuated equilibrium. The reason why I think this is so fascinating is this is just my own observation. Let's go to Perkavos for a second. Mission Perkavos says, by Sora Ma'amoris, Nivra Island." the world is created in ten ma'amoros, in ten sayings. Surely God could have created the world in one creation, in one Maamar. So the Mishnah says because if you now to, you know if you're going to celebrate such a system, you're going to get a lot of reward because a lot more was put into it, and if you're going to mess up the system, you're going to get a lot more punishment because you're 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 affecting a much more sophisticated system. So <laughs> you know, we've all read this mission, we've all heard this. Where does it come from, by the way? Where, where does the, the missioner get that the, the world was created? So Mas? You know, where, where does the missioner just pull this out? of? So you, you, the so you go back to Boatiius and you count the Vayomers, there happens to be nine, nine, nine. Vayomers in creation. Where's the first one? Boaticious. I meaning the context of creation itself was the Mimerurition. I think it is most fascinating that if you go back to the Vayomers in creation. They all occur at the points of change. Isn't that interesting? It starts when we talk about, we're we talk about plant life developing. Isn't that fascinating that there's a Vayomer there? Meaning to say, when we're moving from inorganic to organic, there's some form of life. there is a Vayomer. When we talk about the movement from what is up to, up to now being plant life into now Yishritsu, there's a Vayomer. When we move from the, no, the idea of what we're called, Life in the sea into life on earth, mammal life, by Yomer Lakim, Totse Ariz I think it's most fascinating that if you put Pine Traded Equilibria into context and read this Mishnah carefully now, well, what was the Mishnah saying? The Mishnah says, Look, Hashem could have created the world in one mime, or meaning Hashem could have gone, Boom! The whole world was there in one shot. What did Hashem do? Hashem said, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something much more complicated. I'm going to do something so much more miraculous. I'm going to create a world which is not going to just come into existence. I'm going to create a world which is going to develop into existence. And you know what? There's going to be problems in understanding how it got there because I had to push it over those gaps. There's going to be gaps which you didn't understand. You're not going to be able to find in the fossil record. You're not going to be able to understand. Vayyom, you know what? Let me, let me just help you get over that little point. Science is still struggling with the origin of life. The Torah tells us it's one of the Amarim's. Remember the, remember the statistics we talked about last week? About the development of life? That's not machine? That's the Torah is telling us. Of course, there was, there was an evolutionary process development. As Rav Hertz was saying, there was the creator, the one thought, the one cause behind that point. Let's take it a little further. You're going to tell me you're not rabbi trap. This is fine and dandy with all the creation. But you know what Charles needed most is? Still, be back to humanity. Our humanity doesn't fit into this picture. So let's go back. Let's go back to humanity for a second. Take a look at some of these in Now, remember the Swar and the Ramban are not talking about evolution, they are simply talking about the way they are understanding the Torah. Right? But They were not confronted with Darwin. They had not met Darwin. Darwin was yet to be born for centuries. But nonetheless, the Swan and the Ramban say a very fascinating thing. The Swan is in the notion of creation. Hashem <laughs> blows into humanity's nostrils this notion, this idea of life. Nefesh <laughs> This live nefesh which is re- uh, now able to receive the Selem elokim. So says says the the svarna. Kol mamor av nishmas shakai to be named when referring to the way that Job is describes creation or is having this creation described to him um, at the later parts of Job. Min kol makom vayhi ha adam le nefesh chayad. That nonetheless humanity becomes this nefesh chayah. Haya im kol ze chayah bilvad. Bioltim adaberes ad sheniv sheniv rabbezalem odumus. Humanity was a creature which couldn't speak. Which was simply a chaya until Hashem put into that humanity, that human, that being, a tzelim Elohim. Is that interesting? You can just say, when the Svarna looks at creation, the way he looks at it is Hashem took this creature and uh, infused in that creature at tzelim and now we have humanity. So, what were the building blocks of creation according to Svarna? First, <coughs> the physical. physical is, the, is, the, is there was maybe two stages of creation, humanity. We have, we will call the vehicle, which is the, the physical. And then we have the spiritual, which is the infusion. Moreover, the Ramban asks a very famous, famous question. When it talks about creation in, in chapter 1, it says, el- Adam. God says, let us make man. Pray tell, who is he speaking to? I mean, he, who is the conversation with? So we're all very familiar with Rashi. Rashi says that he was talking to the Pamali or Shamali. He was talking to the celestial host. Because now he's bringing into being another spiritual being. And Hashem, so to speak, consulted. Which is, by the way... At the moment of creation, the humility of creation. Just is an important point that Rashi is telling us. The humility of creation, as us as human beings, the humility of creation. The moment that God gave His most powerful creation was the moment that He was most humble. And we as human beings have to think about that as well. Nonetheless, the Ramban says a different <coughs> idea. He says, <about coughs> What does it mean when it says, let us? I've I've showed you already. There was only ex near creation, creation from nothing on day one. From there onwards, the word used was not bara. Bara means to create. The word is yatsar, which means, what's the, how do you translate the word yatsar? Form, like pottery, meaning I've got the basic elements now and now I'm formulating that into a particular shape. So, when God says, It means to say, He's saying, the elements in the water should now spring, spring forth into that form of life. And that's why I said, Let the land bring forth animals. It doesn't mean to say, you know, the land suddenly pops, you know, out of the land pops animals. You means to say that from the, the, the elements of creation that existed already is where the animals came from. Omar ba'odom na'asek lamar aniva Who's the we? The Raman says it's me, God, and the, the matter, the earth. The basic building blocks are already put into place. So that now the land going to create, create, we'll call it the vehicle, which is the, the physical. What does God do? God creates the part which differentiates the human from the animal, which is the Neveshchaya, nefesh which is the the The, the Malbim, who is addressing uh, this, says, says, says it very succinctly in the, in the last source here. He says, he qu- he's quoting the beginning of the creation of animals, and he says the following, Amru chazar, nefesh chaya Lemina, referring to the creation of the animals, Zerucho Shel adam <coughs> Animals were created, says 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 the Malbim, quoting Chazal. That's where the ruach of Adam Rishon was created. Even though, of course, the neshama of the human is something which is unique and to be created independently. The instinctive level of humanity. Which is part, which was created as um, as part of the his, were we'll called his life force. dugmosa b'yesa b'alchai. That was created earlier when the when the animals were also created. How is saying this? Vezeh hushba See what's happening over here? According to the Malbim, Hashem created the beginning of day six. The man mammals. He created all these the vehicles. What did God do? God took that vehicle and infuse that vehicle with the Neshamah itself, which made us human. You see, here's, here's, the, here's the, whole, the whole trick of the whole business. You look at human. you think about humans, you've got bodily function, instinct, survival mechanisms, reproduction, reproductive function, all wonderful things which we learn about. Then we talk about free will, destiny, communication with the divine, purpose. When you talk about human, you have to understand that on the one hand, you're dividing up the human into two parts. You have the biology which can describe the bodily function, the instinct, for survival mechanism, the <laughs> rep- reproductive function. That's fine. Why is it that the, the hair on the back of our necks stand up? You know, Well, evolutionary speaking, that was actually as animals. When animals were in flight or fight mechanism, they had a mechanism where their hair would stand up. So that sort of survived into the evolutionary process, that humans have it even though it doesn't really have a function. It's, a, it's an unnecessary function. Okay, that, that's interesting so as a survival mechanism. That's great. That, that, that's describing what, what part of the human? The biological aspect of the human, that's fine. But there's the whole, the whole other dimension of the human, which is which is Torah. And the Torah is describing not why not the hows, not the nuts and bolts. The Torah is describing how can this human to the divine, the free will, destiny, the purpose of this human being. You see, here's he the arrogance of the misconception of, um, of of evolution when argued in a particular way, like Richard Dawkins is arguing. Here's the problem. Is what you're saying is like the following, you know, anybody remember making a transistor radio when they were a child? I did, I made a transistor radio out of a little box, and you make it and you try to hear all these radio waves around the world, fascinating, and you get you tune into China, it's very interesting, okay? So what it, w- the problem is like this, is that, is that when you create a radio, you're only going to hear on the radio the amount of bandwidth that you created the, the actual tool with, meaning the bandwidth gives you the measurement of what you're able to hear. I'm not going to be held to hear anything else beyond the tools or apparatus that I've created. So it's like, you know, what it's do- you know what it's like saying? It's like coming to a waterfall with a bucket. And you catch a bucket of water and you say, I surmise from the fact that I was able to catch a bucket worth of water that this waterfall is completely constituted of a bucket full of water. Uh, and you, you look at them and you say, you fool. full. The reason why you can measure it that amount is because you have a bucket and that your bucket can only measure one bucket full of water. You understand? If I have a radio and I'm, and I'm trying to pick up radio waves and I only have a bandwidth of a certain very small window, I'm only going to be able to measure that. If I have a laboratory and I'm going to measure humanity within that lab and I'm going to be able to have very sophisticated measuring tools, remember that you only got half of the puzzle. Don't tell me. That now you can go into the lab and tell me what the purpose of humanity is. Don't come along to me Richard Dawkins or Charles Darwin and say, You know what? I've got it. I understand everything about humanity because your tools are only measuring half the equation. You understand? The Torah is not concerned about that half of the equation. The guidebook is not. In may, we may be able to see that the reflections and the echoes of it, and it's not going to contradict it. But that's not the point of the Torah. It's fantastic. You know what? All the way through, listen to the way the rabbi Jonathan Sachs says in his recent book, Great Partnership. Not his most recent, but about three years ago he came out of the book of the great partnership. Darwinian biology does not entail the absence of design. What Darwin refuted was not the argument from design, but Paley's version of it. Isn't this unbelievable? The natural universe is not like a watch. It is not mechanical, a predetermined arrangement of interlocking parts. But who thought the universe was like a watch to begin with? Not the theologians, but the natural scientists and philosophers of the 17th and 18th centuries. Newton, Leibniz, Laplace, and Auguste Comte, thank you. They believed that all physical phenomena were determined by and could be predicted on the basis of simple laws like those of Newton. What was wrong with Paley's argument was not the theology, but the science. Good science refutes bad science. It tells us nothing at all about God. What is he saying? The brilliance of what he's saying What's, what, what is the greater feat of creation to create a universe in a static, diversified fashion, boom, like the way that Paley looked at it, a very sophisticated watch which suddenly came into being, or to say, you know, the world came to being, Hashem created a process where there was one common element at element the beginning, and He developed that element in such a way that it evolved and developed and became more sophisticated to the point where you had to push it over a few, uh, few valleys to be able to create a world which evolved into what it is today. By Sarah, by Morris. That's way more sophisticated. Hashem is a much more complex creator than a static creator, says Robert Jonathan Sachs. That's a greater, that's greater science to appreciate, but it doesn't affect religion at all. The reason it doesn't affect religion, and this comes back to his famous quote, is science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things back together to see what they mean. And that's really what it comes down to. We can read as much as we want in biology, and it's not affecting what we're reading in the Torah. Because biology is only half of the equation. What is un- distinct of humanity? That what that which is similar between humans and animals is what evolution is measuring. What is different? The difference between humanity and animals is what the Torah is telling us. The Nasi Adam. And that's something worth celebrating. Thank you very much. <laughs>